Hi, I'm Jeremy Larson, the Reviews Director of Pitchfork, and this podcast is supported by Pitchfork Music Festival. Pitchfork Music Festival will take place July 19th through the 21st at Union Park in Chicago, Illinois. This year's lineup features Jamie XX, Alanis Morissette, Black Pumas, Carly Rae Jepsen, Brittany Howard, Jay Paul, Muna, Jesse Ware, 100 Gex, and many more. The festival also features diverse vendors as well as specialty record, poster, and craft fairs and works to support local businesses while promoting the Chicago arts and food communities as a whole. For more information on tickets and lineup, visit pitchforkmusicfestival.com. Yo, it started. Here we go. Uh, Ready? This is the Pitchfork Review. I'm Jeremy Larson, the Reviews Director. For our final show of the year, we're going to take a big, broad look at the trends, scandals, gossip, technological moves, and industry changes that shape the musical landscape of 2023. And later, we'll be joined by Always, who share their song, I Wish I Wrote. Joining me in the studio, my dear friends, Editor-in-Chief Pooja Patel and Associate Editor Kat Zhang. How are you? How are we doing today? Hi, buds. Hi. Good. This episode, we wanted to just take like a 10,000-foot view of what happened in the last, I don't know, 12 months, basically. Mm -hmm. Sometimes we'll just sort of sit around in the office and be like, is this a thing? Like, do we have three (laughs) examples of this thing? And then can we make it a trend? Kat, you brought this idea called the rise of the musical theater girl. What is that? Okay. There are a lot of big pop girls now who have musical theater backgrounds or have that aura of theatricality to them. So we have Renee Rapp, who is a Broadway star and in Mm. Mean Girls, the musical, the movie. And then we have Olivia Rodrigo, who is in High School Musical, the musical, the series. (laughs) Not this again. And then we have Chapel Rowan, who I think did musical theater growing up in school and has a kind of like cabaret aspect to her performance, both in her dress and then her singing style. You're a pink pony girl and you dance at the club, oh mama. And then we also have Caroline Polachek, who does have this sort of musical theater affect. A lot of it comes through in the, like, vocalizations, just a a willingness to push vocals over the top, to be a little catty, to be dramatic. And so given that musical theater is historically perhaps disdained. There was like a separation of church and state between musical theater and, you know, cool music. You're also talking to two people who participated willingly in musical theater. You Mm -hmm. did? Yeah. Yeah. I was in both the company and the pit orchestra in the same production. (laughs) Nice. I was in the pit orchestra for Cabaret, and I toured a musical of Call of the Wild, which was featuring singing, dancing dogs all around the country. And people went to it? Well, they were forced to because it was a school thing. It was like an educational thing. Along with like eight other young That's actors. That's like a harrowing story. Yeah. And then I did that for a year. Okay. Clearly, it's a fruitful topic. All the musical theater people are really excited. And I hope you feel validated and represented in the mm-hmm. future. No, I don't. I'm very, I'm a very, I'm self effacing. Like I, I hide that usually. No, like, you when don't. I, well, <laughs> you bring it up a lot, actually. If this was like a real Housewives episode, then it would cut to where I actually brought it up. <laughs> 
you've actually convinced Jeremy that he brought it up because he does bring uh, it up the, a lot. The, that's a trend. Jeremy gets gaslighted <laughs> on the Pitchfork podcast. So the musical that most speaks to millennials, I would say, my age is Rent, right? And Rent was like a rock musical. Rent is Gen X. Rent babe. is Gen X? I mean... Uh, I'm an older millennial. I'm you're a older than I am. I'm a cuss. But Rent was like taking grunge and rock and like turning it into like, you want to know what popular music is? Like, we're going to put popular music on the stage. And I think like now there's some sort of a reversal because there's so many stars that come from the Disney engine that come from High School Musical, the musical, the show, the movie, the musical. <laughs> and the polarity has been reversed there. People are so familiar with musicals that that's changing, like, how pop music sounds. I'm just thinking about the career of Sarah Bareilles and where mm-hmm. she is. I'm always is thinking about the career of Sarah Bareilles. And how she was, like, first a pop star, and now she has this crazy successful career on Broadway. But she hasn't come back to the pop world, even though it is a big moment for girls with theater backgrounds in pop. Mm-hmm. So, Sarah Bareilles, if you're tuning in, come back. <laughs> We haven't even talked about the Sufjan Stevens musical. Right. And the Pavement musical. There were two indie musicals this year. Wow. Wow. (laughs) Couldn't have said it better myself. Okay, let's talk about a different trend. (laughs) Jeremy, I know you have some thoughts on, like, the experimental rock turn of this year. Yeah, you know, there's three albums that I felt were really speaking to each other. They all have to do with sort of recontextualizing guitars. One was the Yule album, Soft Scars. One was ML Book's Sun Tub. And the other was the Jane Remover album, Census Designated. Now, these albums, I don't know, they remind me of a quote from Daniel O'Patton from a 2009 interview where he says, Timbrel fascism sucks. <laughs> okay. And I've Jeremy's been, wearing an OPN hat. Shout out, Dan. You've been inspiring my thinking about music for a very long time. But obviously, when Daniel O'Patton was starting, he was taking sort of new age synths or like cheesy, corny 80s ballads and trying to not make them cool again, but to sort of bring them out of their state of people thought they were boring, right? Mm -hmm. I'm not saying guitars have ever really undergone that kind of castigation or ostracization from society, but I do think that these three albums are taking guitars and they're doing something like new with it. It sort of started, actually, you want to know the first time that I heard this, it started with the Rina Sawayama album from two or three years ago when she did the kind of like more new metal stuff. Mm-hmm. And that was the first time that I was thinking, I was like, oh, like you're bringing something that people had kind of written off, which is like heavy distorted metal guitars and bringing it into a pop realm. And I think, like, these three albums are doing something very, very similar, like, in that respect. Mm-hmm. Where are you guys on guitars? Fan? Not a fan? The instrument? The, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you in or out? I'm in on guitars. You're in on guitars. Kat, are you in on guitars? Page six. Pitchfork <laughs> editor hates guitars. <laughs> I grew up playing guitars. A million people being like, well, that explains a lot. <laughs> I feel like, well, no, but I, I asked that because, like, I grew up playing guitar. I love the sound of it. Maybe, like, I am biased toward mm-hmm. it. Like, I, I am drawn towards music that features guitars. So I think whenever something feels a little bit subverted or rendered interestingly or obliquely, like especially Jane Remover does on this album. Jane Remover, a erstwhile hyperpop artist, and they've now said, please don't call this album hyperpop. It is a rock album. And it is. Um, it is. 
Well, yeah. is it? I feel like that's what all of these albums ask. Like, yeah, what yeah. is rock and roll? Yeah, yeah. Can it be anything I want it to be? And, yeah. and those are fun questions to tease out when you listen to this. Well, on the subject of guitars are cool again, Megan the Stallion did Cobra, and that features some guitar. And then she did the remix with Spirit Box, which is like a heavy metal band. You know, it's well received. The metalheads were into it. Yeah. What other things did we see? So, as much as I love music theater, I love choreography even more. And, <laughs> you know, it's one of the threats that I have as a musical theater uh-huh. artist. <laughs> okay. Dance battle after this. But there show. is a return of the dancer pop star this year. We talked a little bit about this when we talked about Troy Savan's Rush and New Jeans' Super Shy. Those videos feature. A lot of wonderful choreography. But other than those, like, what else did you notice this year? Yeah, so a young pop artist that a lot of people are talking about these days is named Tate McRae. She's friends with Olivia Rodrigo. She, I think, is Canadian, and she has, like, big big time like cursive voice that sort of like breathy indie affect cursive voice yeah she was on SNL recently like a couple of her songs have gone viral on TikTok So Tate McRae is a trained dancer. She got third on So You Think You Can Dance. And a lot of her music videos feature some intense choreography. So people are talking about her in the context of like the dancer pop star coming back. And her music is also bringing back kind of like 2000s Nelly Furtado vibe. I'm also seeing people talk about like Victoria Monet and the sort of On My Mama music video with Troy Sivan. It's not just Rush. It's also Got Me Started. I actually learned the choreography to that during Thanksgiving break. And then I looked at the video of myself and I was like, I look so terrible. <laughs> I need to delete this immediately. That's what they did on Saturday Night Live. That's what Boy Genius. Yeah, that's yeah. what Timothy Chalamet. <laughs> well, my question is, do you feel like the choreography helps a song succeed? Yes. In part because of people trying to learn it at home and then share their version of it? Partially, but I think at least with the Troy Savan choreo, which is like, my personal favorite. It's just like so interesting to watch. You know, it's very playful. It's cheeky. It's sexy. There's like so much movement and like dynamism. Mm-hmm. So I, you know, I've, I've just watched the music video a lot of times. Yeah. Yeah. One thing that happened like this year in the span of basically a year was AI. Obviously it had been happening a little bit, but ChatGPT came out just about a year ago. And that really kicked off, like, a lot of conversation. Isn't that crazy? And I think this year, there's been some creeping and creepy moments. AI didn't take over the industry, but there are herbingers of worse things to come. I want to call out when the Drake and Weekend song hit. Oh, that was a big one. Heart on My Sleeve was the name of this alleged Drake and Weekend collaborative song. All I know is you could have had the world. The reason that this stands out as a significant moment to me is because our news team went to Drake's team for confirmation and went to The Weeknd's team for confirmation, as we do with songs that are leaked, Mm -hmm. to say, like, is this your song? And... Like, it was a kind of tense news moment for us. And we were like, is this a leak? It sounds AI. We're not sure what's going on. 
And it kind of sparked, I would say, one of the first major real conversations about copyright in music in this new uncharted territory of AI. So that was obviously both about (laughs) not a good song and it ended up being fake, but also I think like a real flashpoint of this year in talking about like what belongs to the artist and what is free for creatives to use. Right, because your stuff can be used to train the AI even if you didn't consent to it, which is kind of unnerving. And I think Holly Herndon, who is the big experimental artist who's been at the forefront of all these conversations about AI, she and her husband, I think, are working on something where you choose to opt in or opt out. So I'm curious to see how that goes. And we also saw, like, similarly, that a bunch of authors had had their books and writing used against their permission by AI to train people to write in their voice. Right. Which is terrifying. (laughs) So AI is basically getting exponentially better. Outside of music, it's like if you look at image generators and and video generators, like it's still not one-to-one reality, but it's like two years ago, you couldn't do what you can do right now, right? So I think at the end of 2024, we're going to be sitting here being like, Wow. Remember when we only had the Drake and Weekend and the Bad Bunny song to worry about? I feel like it's going to get exponentially worse. Holly Herndon has been like very vocal about why she uses AI from a creative perspective in making music. But then very obviously Grimes Mm -hmm. is the other person who has kind of been at the forefront of the AI conversation with music. She basically said anyone has the right to use my voice on any creative project of their choosing, and it is free to be published, and I make half. Yeah, she'll, like, split 50% of the royalties. Yeah, yeah. And so that sparked a million Grimes borrowed songs. Pooja, you really like the song Cold Touch? So the first song that kind of went really big from this project was this song called Cold Touch by Keto. When we did a crossover episode with Wired, I actually played that song next to a original Grime song for the other participants on the show, and they couldn't figure out which one was the Grime song. And that song is really good, <laughs> in part because it sounds like a like 2015-era Grime song. Yeah, it's good because I think the production is good and the way that Keto uses Grimes' voice is good. Like, there's some really nice riffs at the beginning. And I think my problem with a lot of AI songs being put out now is they're so freaking unimaginative. Like, the worst AI song that I have heard recently, we played in a listening room our staff listening room. It's the DMX Christmas song, Silent Night, which is just like, it's It's like, Silent Night, like, let's go. Or like, you know, something, something (laughs) of that vibe where it's like Christmas song plus DMX rapping. The whole thing feels really shady also because you're just like using AI to keep the carcass of the dead alive. It's like alive. the hologram version yeah. of the artist that appears on stage. And it's just the fact that it's just him making a Christmas song 
feels extra macabre and right. dystopian. Well, because he already has a Christmas song right. also that's very, very famous, which is why I assume they are doing it. Famous reindeer of all. Come on. Rudolph the red-nosed reindeer had a very shiny nose. Like a part two. Yeah, you yeah, know? yeah. So, yeah, that doesn't bode well. I also think the fact that there was a an AI Bad Bunny song that came out that Bad Bunny had to address publicly. Like, I feel like there are a lot of AI songs from artists that they just ignore and they're just sort of, you know, like, I'm not going to lend credence to it. But so many of Bad Bunny's fans were like, oh, this is a good song. Like, you should do this. What was the song? Called Demo Number 5, Nostalgia, which is a play on Bad Bunny's song with Bad Gal called Nostalgia. But people really liked it. And Bad Bunny had to be like, actually, this is bad. dark question. Yeah. Do you think that listeners care? I don't know what other people think. Like, I would care about authenticity, and I I care about, like, authorship. I like to know, like, where a song came from. Yeah. Like, when there's no, like, actual buy-in to getting music, if it's all basically free anyway, I at least want to know who did it, Mm -hmm. you know? Like, that connotes some sort of meaning. Maybe for a younger generation, they're just like, maybe it doesn't matter, you know? Maybe if it all just sort of comes in through the big, giant hose of content. So one cover I, AI cover I did hear that was circulating on TikTok was AI version of Taylor Swift covering Starboy by the weekend. And honestly, I really <laughs> liked listening to it. Oh, there and, you go. <laughs> and so did her fans because they're like, oh, she just needs to sing more songs in this mode, which is her reputation mode. So it's, it's just like an experiment of like what genre, what palette should Taylor Swift experiment with next? But they wouldn't be satiated with just like the Starboy AI cover. They want her to like make more songs in that mode. I do want to shout out my favorite AI song this year, which is Homer Simpson covering Born Slippy, Nux by Underworld. It's incredible. Uh, it, it brings me such joy and delight. That's um, so funny. That is wonderful. Like, there is still just that lizard brain part of me that likes a mashup, that likes a goofy cover. And I think AI can scratch that itch every once in a while mm-hmm. in a very sort of shit posty way. I think shitpost AI is great. And I think AI should be used for shitposting like that. But when it starts to encroach into other things, I'm curious about where it's going to go. For more on reading about AI, Jason Green wrote this wonderful piece on the site called How AI Tools Are Turning Words Into Music. Really wonderful stuff. Let's take a quick break. And then when we come back, we will talk about celebrity scandals. I'm David Remnick, host of The New Yorker Radio Hour. There's nothing like finding a story you can really sink into that lets you tune out the noise and focus on what matters. In print or here on the podcast, The New Yorker brings you thoughtfulness and depth and even humor that you can't find anywhere else. So please join me every week for The New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts. Okay, we're back. Celeb scandals. The celebs are at it again. (laughs) What can you tell me they're doing? Who was the sort of the number one celeb focus thing this year? I mean, obviously, Matty Healy. Matty Healy. It was not just last year where we talked about his album. We had a wonderful profile of him. What happened? What 
didn't happen. What didn't yeah. happen? There, okay. There's he, that. The, well, last I saw him, he was eating raw meat on the stage of Madison Square Garden. Oh, and that's like tame. Okay, let me just list off some Maddie Healy things and that other people can chime in. One, at the beginning of the year, he was like dating Taylor Swift for a hot sec. You know, up for debate whether this is a PR stunt. Okay, so that's one thing. And then he made some crazy insensitive anti-Asian comments on a podcast about Ice Spice. Completely unnecessarily. And then he also, like, kissed his bandmate in Malaysia and then triggered some repression there or maybe was banned from Malaysia. Well, I think that was in the good call, right? That was in the sort of, like, I am speaking out against the anti-LGBTQ laws here in this country by thumbing my nose and kissing my bandmate. And then I think he got And then he got banned. Well, according to CNN.com, Malaysia's LGBTQ community slams the 1975's Maddie Healy for onstage kiss, quote, white savior complex. I mean, I could see that. (laughs) Man can't do anything right. Well, the man is trying to do too much. Sure. He just became toxic where that like no matter what he did, no matter what he said, like people would be like, get the fuck out of here. Right. Yes. Including Lucy Dacus, because he tweeted that he and George Daniel wanted to start a band called Girl Arsler. And then he said, I don't really hear from her, Lucy Dacus, that often. And then Lucy Dacus replied, you don't hear from me at all. And then he deactivated his account. So <laughs> I mean, truly one of the most sort of iconic ownings that I've ever seen. So he just became the villain of the year. Yes. But then somehow, like, I still don't think he's like canceled. I don't know. Like, I'm still seeing a ton of videos, for example, of people singing about you. I also just think that pop stars don't get, quote unquote, canceled. And I think he's a pop star and we are holding Mm -hmm. him to indie standards. Yeah. Can I throw a celeb controversy that I really just want to bring up? Sure. Yeah. Let's let's move on from that. Daryl Hall suing John Oates. (laughs) Say it ain't so. Like love is over. What does this mean? We all thought like when Thurston and Kim broke up, like it was really done. But no, this is really the death knell. So, okay, let's let's cash flow continues to be a (laughs) problem in music. There have been a lot of news stories this year about Spotify changing its royalty structures. One of the biggest news stories is Epic Games selling off Bandcamp. Touring has become incredibly expensive. There was a lot of talk about merch cuts. So there was a larger sort of issue about how little money is actually getting into bands' pockets this year. It just seems like we're seeing more and more inequality. Like, it's just so hard for a small band to make any money. Meanwhile, Taylor Swift is now releasing era's tour to like home streaming and she's making like a ton of money off of like repackaging the same product Mm -hmm. but you know i guess i'm glad that ice spice got her munchkin drink and she's also doing a chia pets collaboration do people know what chia pets are yes okay that's good that's that's stayed alive I think it's hard. I mean, the DIY venues are leaving us. More and more venues are being bought up by Live Nation. Yeah. And the DIY circuit is really fertile grounds for bands to gain audiences. And that's how you go from a smaller band to a larger band is you tour. And you tour and you tour and you tour. And it's becoming harder to tour and harder to grow an audience. And so a lot of bands are stuck in that first gear. And I think like the hollowing out of the middle class of music, I think is unfortunately going to keep going because there isn't that infrastructure to let bands go from small to medium, right? You got to jump from small to like extra large. Yeah. Otherwise you might get stuck. Let's leave on a high note. What is your favorite music memory this year? What is something that you're like, this was an amazing moment. Was it a concert? Was it a movie? Was it a time you like discovered an album? 
I saw Wednesday play at TVI in Ridgewood, and it was so, so packed, and all of my friends were there, and the band was great, and it was very fun. That's my musical highlight of the year. Wow, that was for their record release party. Yes. Yeah. It was like the day of the record release. The Rat Saw God record release party at TVI. Can I share with you Yeah, mine? please. As music journalists, um, we get a lot of free tickets to stuff. I'll, I'll go ahead and say it. So it's, you know, when I buy tickets to a show, like I feel like really special about it. And there is something to like the buy-in, right? There's something where you're sort of like, okay, I've sunk some money into this. Mm. There is going to be like a slightly maybe larger expectation. All that is to say is that like I flew out to Los Angeles, got an Airbnb, went to the Hollywood Bowl to see Floating Points and Shabaka Hutchins perform the album Promises that Floating Points did with Pharaoh Sanders. And it was like a genuinely like like life-changing moment for me. It like re-consecrated my love of music. So much of this job and so much of Pitchfork is about listening to other people and trying to like connect with what other people are connecting with. It was like a moment like, oh, this is speaking like to me. I'm like, this is like what I like really love so much. It was just like a very special moment that I feel really connected to. I feel like right now I'm thinking about things before October and after October because mm. I feel like the tenor of the world has changed a lot. But I saw Yeji perform at the Roundhouse at Pitchfork London. First of all, the Roundhouse is this iconic venue. It is huge. And to see Yeji play at that kind of venue, which thousands and thousands of people were there, to see that live was incredible. And it's her and two dancers. And she was like so in control of her body in a way that I have never seen Yeji perform like a dance routine. It was like a raging, bumping party the whole time. That day in London was the day of the protests mm. calling for a ceasefire. She gave this beautiful speech about how, like, while working on this album, the people who showed up for her helped her become who she is now, which is, like, a confident enough person to perform, like, her truth in front of other people and how we all need to show up for the people that can't show up for themselves. And I swear, like, everyone around us was crying and it was very clear that a lot of people had come from the protests calling for a ceasefire to the show. And people started waving Palestinian flags in the crowd. And everyone was just crying the whole time. And it was a beautiful moment to an incredible show. Aww. Thank you for sharing. That's so lovely. Mm-hmm. What a lovely note to go out on. 2024. Hopefully uh, we'll be better. Let's pour one out for 2023. <laughs> Goodbye. <laughs> Goodbye. We'll see you in the next year. Pooja, Kat, it's been lovely as always. Thank you so much. Love you guys. I'm Nomi Fry, and this week on Critics at Large, we're talking about the delights and shortcomings of the new movie Challengers. It starred Zendaya at the center of a tennis triangle and a very steamy love triangle. Who are her loyalties to? Will she be tempted by the other one? How do these guys reckon their professional playing ambition with the romantic and sexual feelings about this mysterious woman? And such we have it. We have a conflict between three people in a game meant for two. Is it a sports movie or a sex movie? Find out on Critics at Large from The New Yorker. New episodes drop every Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts.
On our 2022 year and most always track, Belinda Says, came in at number one. Now that song is up for a Grammy for Best Alternative Music Performance. But even songwriters at the top of their game hear songs they wish they'd penned. Here's Molly Rankin of Always's Song I Wish I Wrote. Hey, this is Molly from Always, and the song that I wish I wrote is called I Can't Stop, Brackets Holding On by Cleaners from Venus. The first time I heard I Can't Stop Holding On, I believe I was just driving down College Street in Toronto in a car, which is probably one of the most effective ways to be struck by something when you're driving alone. And I know that the album is called On Any Normal Monday, but I refer to it as the Green Album. Martin Newell, to my knowledge, is the main creative force behind Cleaners from Venus. He's from England. He's been around for a while, just creating a lot of pop gems throughout decades and releasing them on cassette and just having this treasure chest of ideas and such a trail of melody in his wake. But um, as far as him, I just know that he dresses like a pirate and is extremely hilarious. And I think that that finds its way into a lot of his songs. One of his descriptors on the internet is that he's never sold out. No one's ever asked him to. It's not too late. Come on now. (laughs) That to me is just an example of the type of British humor that I love. Something about this song is just so poignant. I really like the way it just gradually builds. I think there's like a little Roland compu rhythm sounding beat. I'm naturally attracted to drum machines. I guess they just leave a lot of space for vocals and other little things to creep in and creep out. There is a really beautiful cure-like guitar line that comes in, I think halfway through the intro. And a few vocal layers that all come in together, just really powerful first line, I am a boy from an eastern town. Then the chorus comes in and you're kind of expecting to hear the title of the song or or something, but... That actually doesn't appear until after the first chorus into the second verse, they come in as background vocals. So he's singing the hook of the song as a BG, which is really innovative to me. There's a little glockenspiel bit there too, and then as soon as you think that he's laying into this guitar solo, the song just fades out. So it's about two minutes long. That's my style, my favorite type of song. Though I wish it was maybe a 30-minute song. One thing that the song evokes to me is just a very pure love song. It, it kind of makes me think back to being a little bit younger and, and feeling those things, you know, first getting to know someone in that way and pining for them. You know how certain songs can just bring that out in your past or little memories here and there. This song feels a little bit unconventional as well, like he's trying to describe who he is and what that means and making this case for some type of interaction with this person. (laughs) 
One of the things that is so exciting about being struck by a song is just feeling like you want to try and use that approach in something that you make and that I guess is kind of the definition of being inspired. And I think that I Can't Stop Holding On is just such a beautiful way of using very few things extremely effectively. It could be sort of like an instructional thing. I feel like people usually ask me, you know, if you're a musician starting out, what advice do you have? I think Martin Newell makes a compelling case for using a little to make a lot, which is such a great way to start things and just learn how to gradually grow out from there. Or you also don't have to. You can just continue digging into that trove of ideas and remain in your own universe. The Pitchfork Review is a production of Condé Nast Entertainment. Mark Yoshizumi, Elia Einhorn, and Katie Lau at 3DB are our producers. Ryan Domble is our showrunner, and Jessica Grumulia is our music supervisor. Check out all of our year-end lists at pitchfork.com. Thanks for listening. Ever wanted to go inside the Met Gala? I'm Cho Minardi, and this week on The Run Through with Vogue, we take you inside the world's most exclusive and glamorous party. We'll talk about the best looks from the red carpet and everything that happened after. Listen to The Run Through with Vogue wherever you get your podcasts.